Hello all, warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales-based one person and the hairy football true crime show that seeks out and recounts for your listening the often forgotten, unfamiliar dark deeds that the UK and Ireland have in the dark histories. Bringing you these tales is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, and I should explain that the hairy football is my companion often whilst I'm researching and writing now, my cat Peaky, he's always about and he pops up in the background of the recording sometimes. I'm sure you may have heard his little bell going, so it's only fair that I thought I should mention him. You guys are the enthusiasts of the show that keep me coming back for more. It's fabulous as ever having you all joining me, and I hope that as the episode finds you, each of you guys are good and well. So massive thanks out for the feedback so far on this series multi-episode Maniac Arc, which of course we're cracking on with today. There's lots of tale to come with that yet. And also for the response to the latest bonus Patreon episode number 28, Brandy Dan and Auntie Elsie, which dropped last week. For those of you who recognise here on the show my enthusiasm, shall we say, for Crime Watch UK, then in the latest Patreon episode, I recount an anecdote of my own brush with Crime Watch itself. It's a bit of a tale too, and it's one that I've long held off telling here on the show. If any of you guys are intrigued and wish to hear more, then it's so cheap it should have been born in a nest, and it's easier to do than hating Made in Chelsea. Just look up the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, always with a podcast suffix at the end, and quicker than a billionaire after a handout from the government, You can be hearing episode number 28, several other bonus episodes that I haven't shared during the Armageddon that we're going through right now. You can even get yourself some stuff sent out from me to you. Cheers this week go out to both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show. That's namely Claire, Chris Lomas, Susan Angles, Caroline, Abby Hubbard, Sam Moriarty, Mark Watts, Sarah Jane Jarvis and Jesper Palm Holst. Thanks so much guys, your kind support really does mean the world. So before we crack on with part 4 of Maniac, or the first part of part 4 anyway, because there's a bit to this segment, I have a short word concerning this episode's sponsor of the show, Noom. Now today especially, looking after your health and well-being has never seemed more important, and there are many reasons that you might want to practice self-care. You might want to lose weight or get back into those favourite clothes of yours or just feel better about yourself in general. Every person is different. But what leads to lasting changes in life well-being is for being able to establish healthier habits, which is where the sponsor of the show this episode comes in, the health app Noom, which by heading to the unique link Noom, that's N-O-O-M dot com forward slash true crime, you could sign up for for your own trial of today. With a basis in psychology rather than a strict diet and exercise plan, Noom is a health app that doesn't just tell you to eat this, don't eat that, walk this distance. What it does is adjusts to your own personal lifestyle because it recognises that we're all different. It teaches you the psychology behind your lifestyle choices with food and exercise, thus giving you the tools and skills required so you can swap any bad habits that you have with better ones. And everything's kept nicely and neatly together with it, from analysing your diet and suggesting your range of healthy recipes to try, right through to logging your step count and your daily workouts. Now I've been using Noom myself for a few weeks now. I signed up because I wanted a bit more of an all-around feel-good factor. And in the 10 minutes that it takes each day, that's it, there's no long drawn-out sessions with it, I've come to understand better the psychology behind my own lifestyle choices which have taken on board and begun to make healthier ones. The new map's free to download, it's very fluid and slick to use, and just 15 minutes after choosing my plan and signing up, I was away with it, and I always love efficiency such as that. By being straight up and honest with Noom about my lifestyle, I found through my personally assigned goal specialist just how easy it is to think differently, and so to choose healthier about what and how much I eat which you can log on Noom's massive and accurate food database. And if you ever have a day where you wobble in these challenging current circumstances, then there's no slap on the wrist. There's even an online community of other Noomers that you can get to meet should you need support or advice from another side. 
all for just 10 minutes of your day. It's as simple as that. So for that different approach to a healthier, easy to stick to lifestyle for yourself, so visit noom.com forward slash true crime, visit noom.com, that's n-o-o-m.com forward slash true crime to start your trial today. This week then, the maniac art continues, but it begins with a recap. Now if you haven't listened to parts 1 to 3 already, then I best advice that you head back and listen in to those first, because it will put this episode much more in context. And part 4 is not going anywhere, it'll still be there. And as I've said before, who starts anything at part 4 or something? Throughout Maniac, so far we've looked at a series of rapes and sexual assaults in the South London area from the late 80s to the early 1990s, and the horrific murder of mother and daughter Samantha and Jasmine Bissett at their basement flat, also in South London, in Plumstead in November 1993. Then we had a slight time jump back 16 months, and covered one of the better known crimes that I've ever looked at on The Enthusiast to date, the horrific slaughter of mother Rachel Nickell on Wimbledon Common in July 1992. Now there's of course a method in my madness here because it's all plotted out up in the old noggin and I ended the previous part by telling how that with an intense investigation under proper media spotlight police were faced with immense pressure to catch Rachel's killer from the off. They had the use of two psychological profiles and rapidly were to have a suspect who soon became, in the eyes of the police, Rachel's killer. This is his tale. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including that of a sexual nature, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always, guys, please use discretion whilst listening. With that in mind, Please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the first episode of Part 4 of Maniac, where we meet the pagan who became a pariah. So as I said, in the previous episode we looked at the high-profile murder of Mother of One, Rachel Nickell, slaughtered in front of her two-year-old son Alex whilst the pair were enjoying a morning dog walk on Wimbledon Common back in July 1992. It's a very famous case that one is, and I'm sure many of you guys already know the full story. I've seen the comments on Facebook, and there's loads of people who do. And it's all last episode anyway, that is. We looked at the investigation, the psychological profiles made of Rachel's killer, and they ended by recounting the Crime Watch appeal concerning Rachel's murder in September 1992, where the phones rang off the hook. Now there were a couple of people named and who were named more than once in response to this appeal, but the name of one man suggested soon stood out from the others and he was visited by police the very next day. The man was Colin Francis Stagg, a 29-year-old unemployed loner who lived alone at number 16 Ibsley Gardens, a three-bedroom ground-floor maisonette on the Alton Estate in Roehampton, just a short half-mile walk from Putney Cemetery on Wimbledon Common. He'd been named as a possible match for the artist's impression of the suspect described by witness Jane Harriman, the lady who was whilst with her family had encountered the same man on three occasions on the common just minutes before Rachel's murder. And as more than one person living on the Alton estate had watched the Crime Watch appeal, Stags had been the name that popped into their minds as a match. The geography was spot on, and more than one added to police, apart from his name and address, his reputation in the local area. Although he wasn't accused directly of any past offences by them, they perhaps did generalise him somewhat in the way that often people of a certain age, who are loners and solitary figures, are deemed weirdos. I'm sure you know where I'm coming from there. Because he'd been named more than once, he was looked at, and it was soon discovered that his name was already in the inquiry system. He'd been stopped late on the morning of the murder by PC Andrew Crouch, who was one of the officers stopping people from entering Wimbledon Common when it had been sealed off shortly after Rachel's body had been discovered, at the underpass near to Putney Cemetery. Stagg had approached the underpass with his dog Brandy, and had been prevented from entering the common by PC Crouch, who informed him of an incident 
which by the officer's own admittance was that a girl had been murdered there that morning. It was at this point that Stagg had told him he'd been on the common with his dog once already earlier that morning, between 8.15 and 8.50am, and although PC Crouch recorded the details, the time he'd spoken to Stagg wasn't recorded. Now due to operational deployment and the log of sealing the common off and stationing units to do so, the timing of this conversation was placed between an hour and a half to two and a half hours maximum after Rachel's body had been discovered. That would put it between 12 and 1pm the same day. He hadn't been spoken to as a follow-up to this, and as he now had been named a match for the Harriman suspect, shall we call him, it was decided to pay Stagg a visit. Detective Constables Paul Miller and Bill Lyle parked up and watched number 16 Ibsley Gardens throughout the night into the early morning of Friday the 18th of September 1992 and noticed as about 6.15am a short, reasonably stocky man came out of the front door of number 16 with a dog and headed off in the direction of nearby Hollybourne Avenue. He was back an hour or so later and went inside before again coming out and standing on the balcony at about 8.30am. Advising their senior officer who told them he was en route and to move in and arrest Stag, the two men left the vehicle and approached the flat but were intercepted on the way by an elderly woman who introduced herself as Lillian Avid. Marking the two men out as detectives, Lillian told them, I was here to check on what number he'd lived at because I saw the programme and thought, that looks just like Colin. I wanted to go back and check so I could phone the police. You'll know his house, he's got a very distinctive door. Detective Constable Miller approached Stagg and informed him he was being arrested on suspicion of the murder of Rachel Nickell and ushered him back to his maisonette to speak further. And it turns out that Lillian was spot on. For aside from number 16 having the only black painted front door in the row of 13 ground floor properties in that block, decorated with various symbols, it was also the only one with a hand painted sign affixed to the door, which read, Christians beware, a pagan dwells here. Shortly afterwards, Senior Officer Detective Inspector Keith Pedder of the investigating team arrived and as he was sat in the lounge with the arresting officers, he asked Stagg if he understood that he'd been arrested and told what for. Stagg replied, Yeah, but I don't know anything about it. I wouldn't hurt anybody, not even an ant. It's against my religion. Now at this point in the tale, it's as good as any to draw attention to the fact that there are several slight discrepancies over points ascertaining to the entire story this episode and the next that appear within the different texts that I've used for researching. I'll highlight any areas concerning this that I can, but bear in mind that some of these are different opinions and interpretations of events. To list them all would make for an episode longer than the bloody meatloaf song, so I'm not going to do that, and you would have to really read each of the books that will appear in the episode show notes once the arc is completed to see exactly what I mean. So I've tried to present the agreed facts of what happened and word it impartially, and I'll tie up as much as I can throughout the episode as it goes along. Stagg was asked if he'd watched Crime Watch UK the previous evening, and he said that he had. Now, there was a copy of that day's Daily Mirror newspaper lying on the coffee table. Some accounts claim it was open on the page with the full-length an artist's impression of the Harriman suspect, whilst other accounts claim this feature was turned to, and D.I. Pedder asked Stagg if he thought that it looked like him, giving his own opinion that he thought it did. Stagg replied in the negative, claiming that he didn't think so, but in his own words, Perhaps there's a resemblance, but then they said that he was 5 foot 10 and I'm 5 foot 8, and I haven't got a white shirt like that, or a black bag. He was then asked to confirm that he'd been on the common of the, on the day of the murder, to which Stagg admitted that he had. He went there each day several times to walk his dog, Brandy. He was asked if he'd seen or known Rachel at all, to which Stagg replied that he'd seen someone up there, who he first referred to as her, previously a couple of times a couple of years before, and that she'd smiled at him. 
He was then told that police proposed to search his house in his accompaniment as his procedure to stave off allegations that any incriminating evidence discovered may have been planted and the search of Stagg's property began. Now it's important here to describe Stagg's home in as much detail as I can. I'm not trying out to be a bloody estate agent for the day or something, but because it was the home, or rather what was in the home, that further strengthened Stagg as a person of interest to police. So the search began in an unremarkable hallway, with an equally unremarkable narrow 1970s decorated kitchen to the right, and a downstairs toilet to the left of the front door. The living room across the hall was tidy and quite a spacious 12 by 18 feet, gas fire lit and decorated with a number of pictures of countryside and woodland scenes interspersed with assorted brasses and a fixed coat of arms with cross swords above the fireplace. A locked bureau stood to the left of one of the sofas in the room whilst to the right of it stood a glass cabinet containing various trinkets next to which was a fairly crammed bookshelf. Now personally, whenever I go to someone's house for the first time, I always love having a nose at someone else's bookshelf. I love a bookshelf and I'm always drawn to them because I reckon you can tell a fair unspoken bit about people by what books they have. God knows what people who don't know me think if they ever see mine, I tell you. Stagg's bookshelves contained a sizable amount of books on the occult and phenomena ranging from a biography of early 20th century English occultist Alistair Crowley to Colin Wilson's giant book of the supernatural. There were also a number of SAS-style survivalist manuals and several academic textbooks concerning Celtic, Saxon and early English history, but otherwise the room was unremarkable. Moving upstairs, at the top of the stairs were two bedrooms to the left, with a further bedroom and bathroom to the right-hand side, the first bedroom on the left being a box room where Stag slept in a single divan bed. Decorated in eggshell blue, it would have been as unremarkable as the downstairs of the property, save for the altar that was affixed to one of the walls, which was described later by Stag himself as being created from two former shelves of a demolished church, and which contained two candles, two black ornamental bowls and a painting depicting the Greek god Pan, the god of nature and the wild. Also found underneath the mattress of the bed were two well-used copies of pornographic magazines Mayfair and Razzle. The next bedroom was again sizable, but this one was painted entirely black. A red wooden crucifix hung upside down on one part of the wall and various chalk drawings depicting things like the Uffington White Horse, the Cernabus Giant, several different pagan symbols and Anglo-Saxon words, and various horned gods, one that Stag identified as Hearn when asked, adorned the rest of the walls. But the showpiece of the room, the absolute showpiece, had to be the eight-foot pentagram within a circle, painted in white gloss paint directly onto the carpet. At strategic points within the circle were various placed piles of and singular stones, and in the centre, a triangular piece of wood had been painted to appear slate grey. Various feathers were also found upon the floor in the room, pigeon feathers, which after puzzled looks, Stag put down to him simply being a terrible housekeeper, and the only item of furniture in the room was a locked wardrobe, which when opened was revealed to hold a quantity of camping and survivalist gear and a dark hooded coverall. The bathroom was an unremarkable pink affair, that's one of the strangest forward clusters I've ever written in my life that is, and a good novel title I thought, and the back bedroom, again a fair-sized one, had been converted into a gym with a linoleum floor. There was a rowing machine, a set of weights and a bench, a punching bag stuffed full of old clothing and kitted out all around the room covering it at eye level were various graphic pictures of women that were cut out from top shelf pornographic magazines. Worst episode of Peter Andre's 60 minute makeover ever. After several items of clothing and a quantity of knives were seized from the property and his dog was arranged to stay with its former owner on the Alton estate 
Colin Stagg was taken to Wimbledon Police Station for questioning. Once there, he accepted representation from duty solicitor Graham Woods of Keith Hollis Wood Solicitors, and in the company of a social worker to act as an appropriate adult, as is required in certain cases under terms of the Pace Act 1984. Police then began to interview Stagg over a three-day period, at the end of which he would either have to be charged or released. Attempting first to establish a bit about his background, Colin Stagg was invited to speak about himself, first being asked about any hobbies that he had. He replied by painting to police a picture of an introverted person by nature with few friends, preferring to spend time at home with his dog than to be out socialising in pubs and clubs. He was heavily into his music, liking an eclectic taste from Iron Maiden right through to Clannard. He was self-taught at the guitar. He had a talent for and enjoyed painting and enthusiastically described his love of nature and the outdoors, especially Wimbledon Common, which he'd lived just across from for many years and which he knew like the back of his hand, knowing the correct names for the features, woods and pathways that were to be found there. Backpacking was a plan that he claimed he was building up to, explaining the camping and survivalist gear found at his home. It was something he was very interested in, and admitted that two of the large knives that police had seized from his house were specifically for the purposes of chopping wood and for skinning animals, something which he remarked he doubted he could do unless in a life-or-death survival situation. He also admitted that he carried the Swiss Army-type knife with him whilst he was out at all times. When asked about the occult paraphernalia found in his flat, the pentagram and the symbols chalked on the walls, Stagg was quick to point out that despite how it may have appeared, it was nothing to do with Satanism and the dark side of the occult, but rather part of his belief in the Wiccan religion. Now I asked a friend of mine who is Wiccan to help me out with describing this best in the episode because I wasn't overly sure how to, and I was told that Wiccan is an ancient religion predating Christianity and part of the umbrella pagan term for belief systems, specifically concerning those who believe in the old gods of nature, with its fundamental roots following the seasons of the year, phases of the moon and the elements that make the natural world, earth, air, fire and water. Because of this, unlike standard religions, it doesn't have a singular god, there's no Bible or Quran meaning it's free-flowing and with no central governing body. However, it does have a set of principles based around doing no harm, living in balance with the natural world, and a belief that what you put out into the world returns to you three times more powerful. It's not anti-Christian or anti-anything. In a nutshell, do what you will, but do nothing that will harm another. It's as simple as that. Sarah, when the Armageddon ends, I owe you a pint for that. The slogan on his front door, Christians beware, a pagan dwells here, he claimed was to simply ward off Jehovah's Witnesses, or Bible bashers as he called them, which pretty much to me isn't how a Wiccan would act, but what do I know? Concerning the day of the murder, Stagg claimed that he had awoken at about 6am that morning with a bad headache, but had dressed and headed out to deliver the daily newspapers as usual, taking his dog with him. He had collected them from Navnit Patel's shop in nearby Bessborough Road, who he did the round for, had completed his round and headed back home, where he had then had breakfast, watched the morning television news, and then set off at about 8.15am to take Brandy out on the first of his proper morning walks onto Wimbledon Common. Stagg told police that it was a shorter walk than usual that morning due to his debilitating headache, which he wanted to get back home and sleep off and that he'd taken a short path that crosses Roehampton Lane and circles Skio Pond to do this, which he pointed out to police on a map. He remembered seeing two people during that morning walk, a woman walking two dogs and pushing a buggy, who he said good morning to and got a reply, and a man walking shortly behind her, who did not respond to his greeting. The walk from leaving home to returning took 45 minutes to an hour, following which he took two paracetamol and lay down on the settee, falling asleep almost immediately in front of a morning TV game show. 
He was awoken at about 11am or just after by the sound of helicopters flying low overhead and kids shouting, and with his headache almost gone, decided to once again walk Brandy on the common to make up for the curtailed first walk of the day. Looking outside, he saw that the weather had brightened somewhat and become warmer, so had decided to change out of his jeans and into a pair of cut-off denim shorts, then set off again with Brandy for another longer walk. This time they headed the opposite direction from before and approached the underpass near Putney Cemetery, which was where they encountered PC Crouch, who told Stag that he could not head onto the common due to an incident, which he further briefly explained as a murder with the girl's body being found. Stag had then told him he'd been on the common himself earlier that morning, given the times, and PC Crouch made a note of this, along with Stag's name and address. So his walk curtailed, Stag had then headed towards the Bespera Road shops to buy mincemeat from his local butcher, Patrick Heenan, whom he told the news he'd just heard about the body being found, before heading back into Patel's newsagents next door to buy chocolate, where he told the same thing to Navnit's son Yagnesh, who was then serving. He then returned home without seeing anybody else on his journey, cooked and ate his lunch, and then decided to once again walk the dog around the block to make up for his lack of exercise. He'd seen and spoken to a neighbour he'd known for about two years, Lillian Avid, during this walk, whom he'd also discussed the body found on the common with. Police then changed the tone of the interview and asked Stagg if he knew Rachel at all, which he claimed he didn't, although he repeated what he'd said earlier, that he'd seen someone who could have been her two years previously pushing a baby in a buggy. He'd remembered this sighting well because the young blonde woman was very attractive and had smiled at him, and he'd stayed for a while and watched as she lay down and sunbathed next to one of the ponds on the common. Although he claimed at the time he wasn't feeling at his best, he'd gone back to the same spot the next day, hoping that the woman may have returned so he could chat her up. When it was suggested to him his resemblance to the Efit, Stag strongly and emphatically denied being the man seen on the day of the murder, the Harriman suspect, and nor was he what was considered the same person, the man seen washing his hands in the stream, claiming, I don't have a black bag, and I only take a bath on Thursdays and Sundays, it's routine. I've never washed my hands in the stream because it smells. If I did that, I would smell. Asked if he'd been back to the common since, Stag replied that yes, he was there each day with Brandy, and had once even stumbled across the murder scene, or what he took to be the murder scene anyway, as there were several tributes of flowers around it. Now this is the oak tree that was mentioned in the previous episode, and not the actual murder site. The first interview was then terminated for police to speak to the people Stag had mentioned in his account, to attempt to verify his story, and he was placed into a cell. Both butcher Patrick Heenan and newsagent Yagnesh Patel confirmed that Stag had been into their premises that lunchtime, and had spoken to them about a body being found, confirming his version. But when Lillian Avid was spoken to, although she indeed confirmed that she'd seen Stag on the afternoon of the murder, her account differed slightly from his. She claimed that she'd already heard about the body being discovered from another neighbour, but not that it had been a murder. It was Colin Stag who told her this excitedly when he approached her as she was walking her dog a short time later. Crucially, Lillian claimed that Stag had said to her, I often used to stand there on top of the hill and look down where it happened. I must have missed it by 10 minutes. It was on my normal route. Because of his manner, which he described as excited and animated, and how he knew exactly where it had happened, she asked him, Are you sure you haven't done it? To which he grinned and replied no. She was also struck by how clean Stag looked, claiming that he had on sunglasses a white t-shirt and light shorts, and it was almost as though he appeared that he had just bathed. But whilst police were verifying Stagg's story, then another witness came forward, a woman named Susan Gale, who had known Stagg for years and who claimed that on the morning of the murder, she'd seen him heading onto the common through the Putney Vale underpass at about 9.25am. 
She was adamant it was the day of the murder because she remembered having her mother-in-law staying with her that day whom she was having to take home for a pension and so had had to alter her usual dog walking routine that morning to allow for this. She was also certain that it was Stag as she'd known him for years and he'd waved to her that morning plus she was always cautious to place her two dogs on leads whenever they met as her dogs and Stag's had fought in the past and she'd done so this morning. So police now had two accounts which if were correct and true had Colin Stagg witnessed walking onto the common at the exact time he claimed in his account to have been at home asleep on the sofa and still being there at 10.20am within 10 minutes of the murder. When these claims were put to Stagg on the second day of interviews, the 19th of September, he claimed that first he may have exaggerated about the time he'd missed the murder by somewhat as he was excited and angry that somewhere so dear to him had been besmirched by a murder and that his missed it by 10 minutes comment was actually a figure of speech example of time. You know like when you say to someone, have you got 5 minutes and you actually keep them for 20. He claimed he hadn't bathed after getting up that morning, he only did that on Thursdays and Sundays after all and the shorts that Lillian claimed were white were actually his light-coloured, very faded denim cut-offs. Susan Gale's sighting he explained away by claiming that he recalled passing her a few days later and waving, and that she'd simply must have gotten her dates mixed up. When asked again to recount his movements on the day of the murder, Stagg stuck rigidly to the account of events he'd given in the previous day, from getting up with his headache to being stopped by P.C. Crouch at the Putney Cemetery underpass. I was shocked. I gave him my name and address and thought that would be it. Everything I've told you is the exact truth. I'm not a murderer. I could never hit a woman even if I wanted to. I don't even hit my dog, Stag claimed. By this time, police had noticed that when Stag went through a range of emotions in his interviews, He was cooperative, then angry, sullen and tearful and would ask constantly about the welfare of his dog. Each time the tape of the interview ran out and required changing, during the three or four minutes that it took to make the required tape changes and seal the others as exhibits, Stagg could visibly compose himself and pull himself together. He was now elevated in police minds from a person of interest to a serious suspect in the murder and was taken to Wimbledon Magistrates Court so police could obtain a warrant to further detain him and place him on an identification parade the following day. To prevent any photographs leaking to the press that may jeopardise any identification procedures, and at the advice of his appointed solicitor, Stagg was ushered into court with a blanket over his head, because by this time, news of his arrest had gone around the Alton estate like wildfire, and the press were camped outside Wimbledon Police Station in force. The warrant was duly issued, and the following day, an identification parade was held at Brixton Police Station. In accordance with his right, Colin Stagg himself selected nine men out of the 26 assembled there, who as far as possible resembled him in age, appearance and height, and selected himself to stand in position number nine in the lineup. Five witnesses were attending that day, these being Jane Harriman and Amanda Philan, the two witnesses who had seen the white-shirted man minutes before and after the murder and who'd helped create the e-fit, Jane's oldest two children, then aged 11 and 13, and Pauline Fleming, the woman who was identified that Jane had watched leave from the pond and then been concerned that the man was following her. Although Pauline, Amanda and Jane's sons were unable to make a positive identification, Jane had unhesitatingly picked out the man stood in position 9 as being the man that she'd seen three times on the morning of the murder. Colin Stagg was stood in position 9. Now even before the interviews had commenced on the Friday afternoon, when Stagg was in custody, D.I. Pedder had consulted Paul Britton, the profiler who's been prominent throughout the arc so far and who had produced a profile of Rachel's likely killer, for advice on how to interview the suspect that they'd just arrested. He outlined to the psychologist the details of Stag, how he'd come to police attention, 
the findings at his maisonette, etc. But at no point during the conversation did he name him. Britton advised a firm but reassuring interview strategy of trying to win his confidence and get him to talk about himself and his background, to get him to communicate and to build upon this, but that he strictly couldn't advise on the person police had in custody because he hadn't seen or spoken with him, A-OK, all understood. Once Jane Harriman had picked Stagg out of the identification parade, Paul Britton was again consulted and informed D.I. Pedder that police must remain patient and firm with him, while showing him that the inevitability that the truth would out, if it were perhaps a case of him blocking it from his memory, unable to face up to the terrible deed. He suggested showing the suspect a photograph of Rachel how she was found at the crime scene, a shock tactic that may make the suspect realise that blanking it from memory simply wouldn't work. So taking this under advisement, one of the crime scene photographs was selected, a scene establishing shot of Rachel's body from behind, taken at a distance of between 15 and 20 feet. Apart from the top of her head and her bare thighs, Nothing else could be determined as it was in shadow. The photograph was labelled KP27 and signed and dated in front of Stagg's solicitor before being shown to Stagg during a further interview. Now there are conflicting accounts here of the reaction that this photograph had, varying from none at all to, I quote, rage at the bastard who had done this to an innocent young mum. But even with the identification by Jane Harriman and the conflicting witness statements by Lillian Avid and Susan Gale, there were no grounds to charge Colin Stagg with the murder of Rachel Nickell. There wasn't a shred of forensic evidence linking him to the murder. No clothing could be found matching the description of the Harriman suspect. The trainers he claimed to have had on on the day of the murder had been binned a short time previously and all knives that had been removed for forensic examination from number 16 Ibsley Gardens had not revealed any traces of blood that could be linked to Rachel, nor matched the wounds on her body. On the flip side, his story had been challenged with two accounts from witnesses who both knew him that conflicted with it. He bore more than a passing resemblance to the efit of the Harriman suspect. He lived very close to the scene of the murder, and had admitted being on the common on the morning of it. Now add to that how his home was set out, with his bloody altar and paraphernalia. I love a good pentagram on the floor, don't you? And you can see why Colin Stagg stuck in the minds of police. But they couldn't charge him with murder. What they could charge him with, however, it transpired out of the interviews, was indecent exposure. Following Rachel's murder, any reports of suspicious behaviour on or around the common were scrutinised and given a high priority. Like many commons in London, as we mentioned in the previous episode, Wimbledon Common had its fair share of flashes and pervos, hence the need for park rangers patrolling as often as they did. Now one report stood out. A woman who regularly walked her dogs across the common had been startled sometime between the 15th of July, the day of the murder, and nine days later, by a naked man who greeted her wearing, she quoted, nothing but sunglasses and a smile. He'd opened his legs to reveal the large erection that he was sporting. Sporting? Do you sport them, do you? Does that sound right? And had continued to stare at her as she hurried away, embarrassed and more than a little unnerved. During the course of the interview, Stagg had admitted that he was a nude sunbather and regularly did this on the common, claiming that he'd been seen by one of the rangers before doing this and not challenged, so he had assumed it was fine to do so. He admitted being the bather in question, but claimed that he'd not indecently exposed himself, rather that he'd put his leg up to cover his flaccid penis, which was lying across his thigh at the time. He even tried explaining the mitigating circumstances that he had a very high body temperature that made clothing unbearable for him in the heat but taking the advice of his solicitor, decided to plead guilty. Stagg was then released on police bail for the Rachel Nickell inquiry, but was immediately charged with indecent exposure and held overnight, pending an appearance at Wimbledon Magistrates Court the following morning. When he appeared in front of magistrates on the 21st of September, and the offence was read out by Prosecutor Georgina Winfield, 
Basically, he opened his legs, exposed himself and smiled. Stag said nothing apart from guilty and was fined £200 with £20 court costs. His solicitor, Graham Woods, whose services Stag dispensed with immediately afterwards, told the court that the offence had nothing to do with the murder inquiry, but because his name has been released to the press, his reputation has been sullied. Now free to go home and collect his beloved dog, Brandy, Stag tried to make an exit out of the rear doors of the magistrate's court and ran right into the gauntlet of assembled press and photographers, all eager to hear the specifics and his account of being held for three days as a suspect in what was then Britain's most notorious murder. I had nothing to be afraid of, I'm an innocent man and want to see the person who killed Rachel caught as much as everyone else. That was all he had to say on the subject, for scuffling free of the crowd and knocking over a photographer's tripod, Stag stuck two fingers up to the remaining press and ran off. Now as we said, news of the arrest had gone around the estate like wildfire and through his choice of lifestyle, Colin was already marked out as a loner by all and a weirdo by some. Being a self-confessed, because there's no other way around it, self-confessed sex offender wasn't helping him to make any friends around the estate if he'd wanted to. The insults began just the following day, cries of pervert, nonce being shouted at him as he made his way to the local shops. He tried to ignore it, but when kids thought it would be fun to shout the same constantly outside his home later the same day, he thought that it was probably a sign of things to come and would probably only get worse from there on. He eventually, a short time later, retained the services of solicitor Ian Ryan of Russell, Cook, Potter and Chapman solicitors with a view to beginning proceedings to sue the Metropolitan Police for wrongful arrest. Now, he was never to begin these proceedings and remained on police bail over the Rachel Nickell inquiry. Colin Stagg's life was to get a whole lot worse from that point. Colin Francis Stagg had been born at King's Hospital, Chelsea, on the 20th of May 1963, the second of five children born to Victor and Hilda Stagg. At the time, the Stagg family were living in Humboldt Road in Hammersmith, a squalid area back then with high crime and unemployment rate, although Victor, or Vic Stagg as he was commonly known, did have full-time employment as a bill poster in the Wandsworth area. Hilda Stagg, meanwhile, held down various part-time jobs to help support the growing family. In 1968, Vic Stagg's eyesight began failing, which eventually caused him to leave his job as a bill poster and enforced that the family moved over to the then-new Alton Estate in Roehampton. Now, by all accounts, although Vic was happy with the move because it afforded the Stags their first garden, and the Stag children were happy because they now had the vast expanse of Wimbledon Common to play on, Hilda Stag wasn't, and the marriage began to crack up. She began an affair with her driving instructor, and at some point in 1975, eventually left Vic and her children to live with him for a time in Danbury Avenue, less than half a mile away. The stress and upset that this caused led to Vic Stagg suffering the first of what were to be several heart attacks only a week later, but Hilda was to eventually return to the family home when an affair ended. For a time, there was some harmony after this, but Hilda soon began another affair, this time with a man named David Carr. She left home once again and was to never return, Vic divorcing her and surprisingly for the time, retaining custody of the children. Whilst the other stag children were to maintain some form of relationship with their mother after the divorce, Colin decided soon to have nothing to do with her or David Carr, angry at her betrayal of the father that he hero worshipped. As a result, Vic and the already shy and reserved Colin became closer, They'd share walks with the family dog Rex on the nearby common, would listen to records together, and after his father had ignited his interest and at his urging, Colin had bought himself a guitar and taught himself to play. It was in pursuits like this that Colin was happiest. Academically, he was a non-starter. 
He had the interest and ability and was indeed a talented artist and someone who showed a flair for different languages, but school wasn't a happy time for him. The bullying had begun at an early age at Heathmere Primary School and had continued up into Elliot Comprehensive School in Putney, who, a bit of trivia actually, has notable pupils such as former 007 Pierce Brosnan and members of bands The Maccabees and Hot Chip. As kids can be cruel little bastards, as we've said, and as you undoubtedly know, it was a distinct walk that he had that singled Colin out for bullying. This served to make him play truant from school a lot and made him increasingly withdrawn, preferring being at home reading up on astronomy or British ancient or medieval history, or being out on endless hikes around the common with Rex and his father, than to mix him with other youngsters. This shy and withdrawn nature meant that Colin was already from a young age marked as a loner, and although he expressed an interest in the opposite sex, crippling shyness and nervousness, plus a severe hang-up about his height, his walk and his protruding front teeth, prevented him from approaching girls and feeling awkward around the opposite sex, instead he'd usually be found indoors reading. But this wasn't to say that Colin wasn't interested in a lot of things that other lads in the 1970s were, particularly kung fu films, made popular after the release of Enter the Dragon in 1973. Fantastic movie, one of my all-time faves that is. Bullshit, Mr. Hair Man! That's the second time I've quoted that line on the show in its history, and I know it is, although for the life of me, I can't remember which episode it was in, I know it was a couple of series ago though. It was an interest in things like this that led to, before 1992 anyway, Collins only confirmed arrest, however. In one text that I've used for research, a book called Pariah, written by Stagg himself, he recounts how in his teens, like many other boys on the Alton estate, he'd made a set of rice flails fully decorated with Chinese letters to add realism to the Bruce Lee fantasy. Whilst riding around on his bike with them, Colin was stopped by a passing police patrol and ended up being arrested for possession of an offensive weapon, for which he was fined an unspecified amount at juvenile court. There are no specific dates mentioned here about this apart from being in his teens, which puts it in the latter half of the 1970s. This was the only thing to stand out in Stagg's early life, for he left school without any academic qualifications, taking for a time a succession of manual low-skilled roles. He had a couple of non-sexual romances around this time that never amounted to anything, but by his own account wasn't too bothered or worried about this, believing that it would happen sooner or later and a solid, dependable relationship would seemingly fall into his lap. However, as time went on and this unicorn never fell from the sky, Stagg claims he had at an early age resigned himself to being on his own. He was also later to admit that he had the one homosexual experience of his life in 1980 also, when he was sunbathing on Wimbledon Common and decided to masturbate, as you do. As he was doing this, a man came out of the bushes and asked if he could join him, to which Colin agreed and the pair masturbated together before the man left. I don't know if he left him a box of milk tray or anything or after that, but I digress. Never holding down any lasting or notable employment upon leaving school, Colin did instead apply to join the RAF and at age 19 passed the initial entrance exam in 1982, wanting to get away from a home life that was becoming increasingly fraught with violence and drug use on the part of his brothers Lee and Peter. He was all set to undertake the final assessment which if successful at would have led to a final medical exam and attestation, but then Vic Stagg had his second heart attack and Colin opted to abandon his attempts to join the forces, instead staying to care for his ailing father. This he did until 1985, which was when Colin claimed he had first signed onto the dole, nor the details of any recorded official employment in the years between this are reported, although Colin claimed that he picked up general handyman and gardening jobs around the Alton estate throughout this period. The following year, in 1986, Vic Stagg died of a massive heart attack, and the family were devastated, but particularly hard hit was Colin, who had hero-worshipped his father. 
Now he never reveals directly as such throughout the text that I've used for research, but from the frank way that they're written, and they are written very frankly, as I said before you'd have to read them entirely though, then I suspect myself that Colin suffered what was to be lasting, perhaps untreated depression following his father's passing. There's no mention or admission of him ever having come to the attention of mental health services reported, and perhaps if it's true, then it's understandable. You gotta think, this was an introverted guy anyway, alone the happiest out on walks with his dog and his dad, who practically disowned his mum because of her betrayal of him, and who abandoned a potential career in the RAF to take care of him, suddenly being left without him, it must have rocked his world. What can be confirmed is that following his father's death, the local council placed 16 Ibsley Gardens into Colin's name. He promptly kicked out and fully evicted his younger brothers Peter and Lee from there, and from 1986 onwards, Colin lived alone with his dog in the three-bedroom property, adapting it over the years into the home we heard of earlier on in the episode. This then became Colin's life following evicting his brothers, effectively that of a recluse and an introvert. He wasn't a smoker or heavy drinker, shunning pubs and clubs, and was staunchly against drug use. Although never gaining full-time employment, and that stems back to what I mentioned before concerning depression possibly, and having his overheads and rent covered with unemployment and welfare payments, Colin did pick up extra cash-in-hand jobs doing a spot of gardening or labouring around the estate, and was also employed on a morning newspaper round by local newsagent Navnit Patel. Otherwise, Colin spent his days at home watching TV, reading up on ancient history, and being endlessly out with the dog, a constant in his life and his love of nature and the outdoors inherited from his father. The stag family dog Rex had died in the late 1980s and was replaced with a Labrador cross named Sally until she passed away in 1990 before a neighbour of Collins offered him another crossbreed named Brandy who soon became the love of his life. But what Colin yearned for was a partner, a relationship, for he was extremely lonely. Predominantly though, he wanted a sexual relationship. He's quite open in the books concerning the subject that this was his predominant thought and reason for wanting this, as he makes a point of saying otherwise how happy he was in his own company, doing his own thing and holding his own routine, yet he was approaching 30 years of age and had still not lost his virginity. As said, he was awkward around women and didn't find making conversation easy or flowing, though he had a couple of brief relationships with local girls that never progressed beyond what he classes as heavy petting and mutual masturbation. He did venture into responding to a Lonely Hearts advert in 1991, which we shall come back to in the overall tale, and a brief, again non-sexual relationship with a childhood friend named Tina Malloy followed at the end of that year, but by January 1992, this too had ended. Something that Colin considered would possibly make himself more attractive to the opposite sex was to work out and bodybuild, hence the home gym, and an all-over suntan, to which extent he started to nude sunbathe on a part of Wimbledon Common. Now again, he's very open about this, claiming that he hoped that by being daring such as this, he would also improve his confidence by forcing him to overcome his inhibitions, and further, he claimed to have discovered a spot on Wimbledon Common that was used by others for this very purpose, and this is where the incident of indecent exposure that he pleaded guilty to took place. One author claims there was for a time a bylaw in force that allowed early morning nude bathing on the Kingsmere side of the common, now whether Colin was savvy enough to know about and be able to quote this, I don't know, but who needs that much of a bloody suntan anyway, I ask you. It was shortly after this relationship with Tina Malloy had ended, which he'd taken very badly by all accounts, that Colin became ill. His weight plummeted by about two and a half stones, and he was eventually diagnosed in May of that year with celiac disease, which by all accounts left him more of a recluse than he already was. However, once he'd managed to understand this, the medication had kicked in, and he'd adapted his diet to suit it, he began to feel better. His long and regular walks on the common with Brandy resumed, and by July 1992, were up to their former pace again. 
Just over two months later, in the eyes of the police, Colin Stagg was the prime suspect in the murder of Rachel Nickel. But he hadn't been the only suspect. As I said in the previous episode, police had had some 32 names, including Ben Silcock and Roderick Newell. There'd also been other lines of inquiry too. For a time, a man who knew Rachel and was said to have an obsession with her was looked at as a serious suspect before being eventually ruled out. And in September of that year, a woman given a name as Helen contacted the incident room on a number of occasions and informed them that her cousin, who she claimed to be having a sexual relationship with, a man named Gary Edmondson, had confessed to her to killing Rachel Nickel. Her information sounded so convincing that police did take her as genuine. She called several times over a period of a few weeks and eventually imparted that Edmondson was hiding out at an address in Manchester, but he wasn't found there when police went. The correct telephone number of the address was given and the identity of one of the other occupants there, so police did take Helen as genuine even though they could find no record of a Gary Edmondson who fitted the description that she'd given. Each time she called, she would refuse to give any information as to her identity, claiming that another man had been involved in the murder and had threatened her. Then two weeks later, an American-sounding woman given a name as Josie called the incident room claiming that she was worried about a friend of hers named Helen who knew someone who was possibly involved in the Rachel Nickel murder. Josie called several times again over a period of days and imparted more and more information about Helen and Gary but would not identify herself. Then Helen called again and began talking about her American flatmate and when this was all nicely put together, when she was asked where she was calling from, she claimed it was a telephone box in Lewisham. The call was actually traced to the offices of the Cheltenham Induction Heating Company in Cheltenham in Gloucestershire and when inquiries at the business were made, the firm was found to employ only five women. When checks on each of these women were run, one of them, Susan Jacqueline Ailes, was found to have a long history of making several false accusations of rape, theft, you name it, she claimed somebody had done it. When confronted by officers who travelled down from Wimbledon, she soon admitted being the bogus Helen and Josie. She was placed on probation for a year for wasting police time after admitting making the whole thing up and was also recommended to seek psychiatric help. Now as we've said before, every major inquiry has bloody idiots like this getting in touch. Those people who've got serious problems in their lives and want a bit of attention that they somehow feel they can only get by making up cock and bollocks stories such as Ailes did or malicious people who just want to sling mud in order to wound or shame someone for their own personal satisfaction. It detracts police time away from the genuine lines of inquiry that may be raised by well-meaning people, and these people, if they're discovered, they deserve the full weight of the law thrown at them for punishment. So there'd been a few of these in the Nickel inquiry, the mass publicity concerning the case had brought all sorts of them out. But it was because of the publicity surrounding the suspect that police had questioned for three days and released on bail, or rather, concerning his conviction for indecent exposure following this, that was to push the inquiry forward. More than one officer was absolutely convinced that they had had Rachel's killer sat in front of them for three days that September. Too much circumstantial evidence suggested that it was him, and Stagg was being kept under constant observation but there was no hard forensic, physical or eyewitness evidence against him and police were at a loss as to where any would come from barring Stagg's conscience getting the better of him and him admitting to Rachel's murder. And then in late September, a telephone call to the incident room from a woman named Julie Pines planted the seed of an idea in D.I. Pedder's head as to how police may be able to do this which we shall hear about in the next instalment of Maniac, part two of The Pagan Who Became a Pariah, because that's a spot-on place to leave the tale here. It's far too complex a tale to be rushed through, this one is, and I like to be as thorough as possible here on The Enthusiast, as you know. So to make it more manageable, I broke this section of the arc down into two parts. Now that one's near done also, 
and it'll be coming to you in just a couple of days time before the week's out. I thank you very kindly for joining me here for the episode today, which I hope that you found both interesting and informative. Stick with it because the whole thing is one of the most memorable tales I've ever covered here on the show. And it's my pleasure, well, I hope you know what I mean, you know what I mean anyway. It's my pleasure to be bringing it to you. All that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys good and safe times, stay safe out there, all of you, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care, guys, and goodbye for now.